Welcome to It's All Political on Fifth and Mission. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer. Donald Trump is in trouble again. This week, he was questioned by the Attorney General in New York as part of an investigation into his businesses, just days after the FBI raided his Mar-a-Lago home in Florida, looking for possible classified information that Trump kept from his time in the White House. Republican leaders from across the country reflexively stood by Trump, describing him as the victim of the weaponization of federal agencies. Here's Florida Congressman Matt Gates. We're going to want to see the predicate for this unprecedented raid on President Trump's home in Mar-a-Lago. We're going to want to know if there were senior officials involved in something that is so abjectly anti-democratic. And here's Republican Greg Stubbe, a member of the House Judiciary Committee. Welcome to Joe Biden's totalitarian police state where it's war on conservatives and they're using Democrats in the justice system, deep state Democrats in the administration, the FBI and the DOJ, and there's no check on their activities in the House or the Senate because that's all run by Democrats too. Why do so many Republican politicians and operatives remain loyal to Trump? Former longtime Republican strategist Tim Miller has spent the last several years trying to learn and explain why. And that includes why he remained loyal to the Trump-led GOP for a while, too. He's a gay man who lives in West Oakland. Miller knows the GOP well, having worked for John McCain, Jeb Bush, Mitt Romney, and others before he became one of the nation's leading anti-Trumpers. He's 40 now. He worked for Republican campaigns starting at the age of 16, fueled initially by a genuine passion for free market economics and the idea that America could be a force for good in the world. He explains it in his best-selling new book, Why We Did It, A Travelogue from the Republican Road to Hell. Here's our conversation. Tim Miller, welcome to what Nancy Pelosi likes to call the city of St. Francis and to the It's All Political on Fifth and Mission podcast. You went to Catholic school. You went to you get that reference. Long overdue. Of course I get that reference. Yeah, longtime Catholic school kid. And yeah, I've been begging you to get on this podcast. I, <laughs> I get invited to all... Oh, you know, these national news podcasts, but it's tough to get on my local political podcast these days. So I'm happy <laughs> to is, finally make the cut. It is long overdue. All right. Let's talk with, about the news of the moment. Uh, on the day we're recording this, Donald Trump is being questioned by the uh, New York Attorney General's office, part of a long running probe into his business practices. This comes days after the FBI raided Trump's Mar-a-Lago home looking for possible classified information that Trump kept from his time in the White House. But what's followed, I, I, I love this, is because a perfect illustration of what you've been talking about and writing about and have written in your a new best-selling book. After the raid went down, Republicans reflexively jumped to his defense. Why, Tim, do Republicans do this? Yeah, look, I think that um, the response from the establishment Republicans is, is the most dispiriting and the most noteworthy from a political standpoint, you could imagine a different Republican Party that would be ready to nudge him off stage right. Too much baggage, too many investigations. You know, here's your gold watch. We're ready to move on to Ron DeSantis, right? In some ways, that would almost be the logical move, uh, yeah. you would think, politically speaking, um, because of the damage that he's caused them. Uh, the reason he's the reason Mitch McConnell isn't majority leader right now because of his uh, shenanigans in Georgia. They're not doing that, so that's the question: Why? It's a question at the core of my book. Why it's called? Why it was called? Why we did it? And I interviewed a lot of them and tried to figure it out. And uh, there, there are a bunch of answers that I offer in the book, but I think the two that are m the most relevant here are one is, is voter capture. 
these folks have decided that their voters own them. You know, the conventional wisdom in Republican circles is that these voters want unadulterated Trumpism. They want Trump and that they and that challenging them is only a path to defeat. And by the way, that conventional wisdom is basically borne out with like only a few exceptions in Republican primaries. Right. So that's one voter capture. That's less interesting to me than the other other thing that really shocked me when I was doing interviews for the book. Even the people like, you know, who've gone to defend him, Marco Rubio. Uh, McCarthy, people that we have, their other books have them on secret tapes. Our friend Kevin McCarthy, you know, talking about how terrible Donald Trump is. So we know that's what he really thinks. So then, why come to his defense so full throatedly? And and in this, and the answer is that as much as these guys dislike Trump, um, they've come to dislike us more. And I mean us in the literal sense, you and me. Right? When you the say me- us, what would you? You, you in the media? Yes. Um, the critics of them. Me as the never Trump critic. And and when I would get a couple beers and do that, this book is less about the actual politicians because I wanted to focus on people that I knew and had relationships with and would interview with me. So it was mostly about the, their strategists, but their strategists reveal the same mindset and compulsions. And I would find that they just really have decided that the never Trumpers and Lincoln Project and the media and the elites and the, uh, you know, people, the friends in, at the club that think they're racist now for going along with Trump, like they are the bad people. They There's this bunker mode that has said, in throughout the Republican establishment. And so as much as they would kind of wish that Donald Trump could just go away, the you know ways that he's demeaned them offend them less than, than the way that we have put the mirror up to their cowardice. They're defensive and they've come to really hate people um, uh, who, who pointed out to them more than they dislike Trump. And, and I think that in a lot of ways they're acting against their own political interest um, because that, that emotion is much stronger than I realized. But what would it, so what would it take to move Republicans away from Trump? What, or, or, and independents too, for that matter. Yeah, I mean, well, the easiest answer is um, death. Uh, <laughs> which I'm not rooting for. No, no one is rooting not for that rooting or wishing button. that. Yes, not yes, at yes, all. Yes. Not at all winking right now or crossing my fingers on this podcast. Um, uh, I mean, right. I, I think they'd be happy to have moved on to uh, uh, a way to DeSantis. I also think that it had other people done the dirty work for them. Again, I, the voter capture part of this is the prime element. They're just so scared of their own voters and 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 watching the you know car get away from them that that they're not willing to you know do do what is necessary. I, I but I think it's important to just point out here, strategic silence was an option for them these last two days, right? I mean. Could have said nothing. I, right. I, Could have said nothing. I, there isn't, you don't have to be Tim Miller, right, trolling Donald Trump on Twitter and, like, mocking him and, you know, uh, making fun of his manhood and all that sort of stuff. You don't have to do that. You could just have said, well, let's see how the legal system plays out. I think it's extremely telling that they didn't do that, that they actually attacked the institutions, attacked the FBI. And that speaks to this, what is the animating element of the Republican base right now. They, they want their politicians to hate the people they hate with the same fervor that they do, right? Like that's the most important thing. You're, now, you're also a gay man. You yeah. live in West, Lo- West Oakland with your husband and your daughter. And, and you write a lot about the, the compromises or, or contortions, as you, as you write in the book, you made to do public relations for candidates who, who held anti-LGBTQ views. You described several incidents in the book about when you're in the room with candidates, uh, people you're, you're working hard to make look good, uh, make some sort of anti-gay comment. Tell us, tell us about one of those. 
Yeah, that sucked. Um, uh, I, firstly, before I tell you an example, I just want to say I, I talked about this at length in the book for two reasons. One, I, I wanted if I'm going to understand and I'm going to turn the, the the shine the light on the really immoral and icky stuff that my former colleagues went along with in the Trump era. I felt like to gain the credibility to do that, I need to be honest about where I where I fell short too. Um, and so, and and I think the gay issue is the most stark one, right? I, I, as I think I say in the book that if I could work for people who wanted to deny me the most important things in my life right now, my husband and my daughter, they they were against gay board, uh, adoption or against gay marriage. If I could compartmentalize that and and put the game and winning and whatever other issues above that. Then think about how easy it was for people who are privileged, who are in like, you know, the pockets of prosperity, whose Donald Trump's, you know, Donald Trump's cruelty didn't affect to to compartmentalize that. Right. Uh, So it becomes easier to kind of understand how people went along with this, you know, once I explain my own mind. So that's one reason I brought it up. The other is I, I think that I. You know, I, I, one of the reasons I think I broke from them is I had already had this experience of of uh, shedding an identity <laughs> and of coming out of a closet, right? And and being because I was initially a closet Republican staffer, and then I was one of the first openly gay staffer, uh, not one of the first ever, but like one of the more prominent ones who's on the record, you know, not a back office person. Like this is Tim Miller. He's the spokesman for the campaign and he's gay. Like there weren't a lot, there were, there weren't really any other like prominent examples of that besides me. I took a lot of heat. I mean, I give examples throughout the book. Uh, you know, I was working for Ken Cuccinelli, which I, which is the most gross thing I did, I think in retrospect. I don't know. There's a, there's a former uh, attorney general, former governor, or he ran for governor ran of Virginia governor. and then, um, and he was attorney general and then he, uh, he, then he up going to Donald Trump at the Department of Homeland Security. So, um, yeah, he's uh, he didn't know I was gay um, because I was a consultant. Uh, all this, all the campaigns I actually worked for, I told the candidate before I took the job, I'm gay. I'm not going back in the closet for this campaign. If you don't want to hire me because of that, that's fine. I won't leak it to the press. But like, I just I, so they all knew. But, but when I was consulting, I didn't really feel the need to bring it up to every client. So Cuccinelli didn't know. And um, and they are just ranting about how in, in debate prep about how stupid it is that he has to even answer questions about gay marriage. There aren't even that many gay people in West Virginia. This is an important or in Virginia. This is an important issue. The media is just out to get them because they care about the gay agenda uh, and on and on and on. And like a handful of people in the room knew I knew, knew I was gay and are like looking back at me furtively. And, you know, I just have I'm, I just ate it. I just sat in the back and ate it and walked out and, and went on doing my job. And I just look back at that and think, hey, I, I just have great guilt over like, why did I like, like, you know, why didn't I have more self-respect than to deal with that for starters? But but secondly, um, I, I think I recognize the power of of being of the, of politics, of the of the draw of it and uh, the, the being close to power that I was that I did that I did. I mean, I, I just I did just eat it. And so I do see this parallel. Look at all the people that that have just had to shed all of their self-respect to work for Donald Trump. And you put them in you, – you mentioned compartmentalizing. You yeah. referred to yourself as a compartmentalizer. Yeah. But you created a, a series of categories to define and describe why people uh, sublimated uh, <laughs> their various identities or, or beliefs and values to, to work for Trump. Uh, you, you, there are various categories like the messiahs, the junior messiahs, the strivers, the little mixes, and the nerd revengers. Let's tell us about a couple of uh, names that you people that, that, that people might know, uh, like uh, former White House press secretary Sean Spicer. 
or as you refer to him in the book by his college nickname, Sean Sphincter. Ooh. Uh, what category does he fall into? <laughs> oh, good old Sphincter. Um, he falls into the nerd revenger category. Uh, I, I think that um, this was a, there are all these different reasons why people ended up going along with Trump. And this book is about people that that saw him for what he was and went along with him anyway. Yes. Right. Like there have yes. been a lot of books that are like, oh, here's all of the crazy things that happened or here are all the most terrible people and et cetera. And there are some terrible. There are some sociopaths. There's some bigots that worked for him. You know, Stephen Miller and Steve Bannon all down the line. Right. I, 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 I just don't find those people as interesting because they were necessary but not sufficient for Trump to gain power, right? If he just had his little troll, racist troll boys behind him, like uh, he couldn't have staffed a government, right? He needed all these other folks to 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 find ways to rationalize going along with him. So how'd they do it? The Spicer category is is a really com- more common one, I think, that people realize in D.C., which is uh, the people that are at the top of the game in politics are usually a little younger than in other businesses. Um, they didn't, uh, they weren't cool. You know, the types of people that did model you in and like me, I'm talking about myself here too. Like we weren't, we, I, I was, I was on the very outer edges of the cool kids table in the cafeteria and I was much closer to it than most of the people in Washington. Okay. I mean, like most of these folks were virgins and were not partiers and didn't, you know, didn't have that experience because they were, they were stri- They tried hard. They worked hard in college and they, they were into they had nerdy interests. So they get to Washington. And all of a sudden, they're around a lot of other people like them. And it's a lot of young people who have power, who have influence. Um, you start getting invited to parties by quasi-famous people. You know, you're getting called by George Stephanopoulos or Jake Tapper or whoever you think is cool, Dana Perino, whatever whatever your stripe is. And they need you. They want things from you, right? You have access to the boss. And so, you know, the, they it gets a little out of control, right? Like it becomes like a little bit of a freshman dorm room mentality with the amount of drinking and hooking up and all this stuff at this part of the DC culture and 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 people get enamored with that right and so so Spicer is this example of Trump comes along and you're like why would you go be the spokesperson for Donald Trump you know he's going to humiliate you you know your career is going you know you know it's going to be embarrassing but like the answer is if you have become so enamored, having been called Sean Sphincter and made fun of all of your, your, when you're a young person, and now you know you go to parties, maybe you're not getting the praise from the most cool, the coolest kids' table still, you know, mm-hmm. the elites. But at Republican parties, Sean Spicer, you know, he's wanted. So while everybody else thought when he was getting made fun of on SNL that that was really embarrassing, for him it was like. This is so cool. They're talking about me on SNL. Like all of the into all of the young people in Washington now want to do selfies with me. I go to Trump rallies and I'm like a little mini celebrity. I give oh speeches, right? Yeah. I know it's pathetic, yeah. but but it's it's real. You yeah. know, and, yeah. and so when Trump comes around and says you can be the person in front of the camera, obviously he did it. I think it ends up making a lot more sense when you think about it that way, right? Like that that people on the outside look at him and say, I don't, he must have been stupid. He must not have realized that he was going to be humiliated, or maybe he's evil. I, no, I, I think it's it's been all. It's, it's a human. It's a human reaction. It's a human reaction of wanting to be seen. We will have more of my conversation with Tim Miller after this break. Let's hear from another Republican who leaped to the defense of Donald Trump after the FBI raid. It's aspiring Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy from Bakersfield. We now find that justice in America is not equal. Is determined upon whether you want to go after a political person or not. And you go after your political foes, I think that's wrong. We'll be right back. 
You can support the newsroom that creates Fifth Emission by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. Merrick Garland, Chris Ray, come to the House Judiciary Committee this Friday and answer our questions about this action today, which has never happened in American history. What was on the warrant? What were you really doing? What were you? All right, Congressman Jim Jordan, I, th- I think we get the idea. That's another Republican reaction to the FBI raid on Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago residence on Monday. By the way, Trump has the warrant and he could publicly share what was on it if he wanted to. Let's get back to my conversation with Tim Miller, author of Why We Did It, a travelogue from the Republican road to hell. And then there's uh, Reince Priebus, yep. uh, Trump's uh, uh, former uh, chief of staff. Uh, you, what persuaded someone like this? You describe him as a, as a people pleaser from uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin, to serve Trump. But you, and another person you knew from your days at the uh, Republican National Committee. Yeah, Reince was my boss. And, I, and so just really quick, I'll just do this parallel. Um, he was one of the people who was, to his credit, good about I was openly gay at the RNC. He took shit for this, for hiring me from the Christian conservatives at the RNC. Uh, and and I left the RNC before the gay marriage ruling. And I told him that I didn't want to be the spokesperson during that time. And he made this case to me at the time. He's like, Tim, actually, you should be on the inside. We need the we need a he didn't use this phrase, but I'm going to use it. Uh, like we need a reasonable gay in the room. Right. When we're putting out press releases, when we're talking it's to make sure that we're not being bigoted, like, uh, you know, he was he's not anti-gay. He didn't care. Um, okay, so I, I, you know, I said still, no, that's it's going to be too far. Um, you know, that's against, you know, it's going to be a red line for me. I'm going to feel bad about myself. I'm not going to do it. OK, fast forward three years. We're in Miami. And it's Trump hasn't won yet the nomination, but it's pretty clear that he's going to. And Reince is still the RNC chairman. And um, I met him at a, one of these RNC happy hours. I pulled him outside. We went into the uh, into the hallway, and I said to him, "I was like, Reince, you have to quit. I was like, you should quit. Donald Trump is is going to tarnish you. You don't even know what the bad stuff he's going to do is. He's tarnished everyone that he's ever worked worked with. And this is your moment. You can and you can do it in a nice way." And he looks at me and he makes the same argument that he made to me that many years before. He's like, no, no, Trump's going to need a reasonable guy around. He's going to need somebody like me around. And that, I think, was just revealed his motivations. He wanted to be in the mix. Like, like He couldn't exit stage right and go back to Wisconsin. He just wanted to be close to power. He didn't really want that power himself because he's a people pleaser, like you said. Like he doesn't doesn't he's not like an old old uh, Democratic Party boss and San, you know he's right, not right. like a, a Moscone Party boss, right? He wanted power. No, he wanted to be in the mix. He wanted to be around power. He wanted to be able to kind of nudge Trump the right direction and and sort of s- and feel like he was important and and be an intermediary. Yeah. And so and so then once he agreed to do that. All, everything that I said ended up being right. Like he he becomes tarnished by Trump. He gets fired by tweet, and um, and you know he didn't actually make any difference. Let's talk a little bit about twenty twenty four because it's never too early. Who, if anyone, could beat Trump in a GOP primary? Only DeSantis, and I'm not even sure him. Um, I, I, I there is if you we we do a focus group podcast on the Bulwark, which is so so cool if, for people who are super nerds because we like just talk to actual voters and hear what they think. There is about half, maybe even a little more than half of the Republicans who like Trump but think it might be time to move on because they sense yeah, he's got the New baggage. York Times poll said 49%. Yeah, or, yeah right. Or, so, yeah. so there's about – there's a tiny percentage of 
anti-Trumpers, 4%, maybe, you know? And then there's like 50, time says 49, you know, give or take with margin of error. So you could get to a majority. You can get to a majority. The problem is, for me, once you actually get into a primary, now you're anti-Trump by definition, right? You're in a primary. It's very hard. Ask Ted Cruz. It's very hard to run a primary, to do a primary where it's like, Mr. Trump, I love you, sir. I just want to shine your shoes and you did such a great job and you're a broad-shouldered leader, but maybe people should go with me instead because I'm just not quite as divisive. (laughs) That's like very hard to do, right? That doesn't really work. So then once you start criticizing him, then you become anti-Trump. And so then does that 50% of people that like Trump still, but might be ready to move on, don't do some of those start to start to fall off because right. they start looking at you and saying, wait a minute, you're not, you're actually against me, right? Like in this tribal element that we talked about at the top where you get in this bunker mode. So I think it's really tough. No chance for Mike Pence. Obviously no chance for any of the people that I would like, like Liz Cheney or Mitch or something. Um, and I, I think small chance, I, I, more than a small chance for DeSantis. Uh, you know, I, I, I think that uh, you know, I'd, I'd make Trump the favorite for sure, but DeSantis would have a chance to beat him. So, where do you go from all from at this point? As you say, you've left the Republican Party. Are you? What do you register as? Declined to state now? I or? did. No, I did register Democrat so I could vote oh, for really? Biden. And okay. I mean, I don't. You know, I, it's like, do I do I identify as a Democrat? I don't know. I, I don't have any donkey tchotchkes. You know, <laughs> you don't have I, a tattoo. Yeah, yet. I don't have any tattoos now. But I but I, I wanted to vote in the presidential primary uh, here. I ended up voting for Biden. Would you, or you consider yourself sort of waiting in exile for a, 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 another re, moderate Republican to come forward? Or no. are you, uh, uh, is there a path? I mean, you're doing great work or writing for the bulwark and Rolling Stone and such and, and the book. But where, what's the what's the path yeah. forward for you? Well, I think the Republican thing is over for me. I'm going to be like the old man in the senior citizen home waving my finger at somebody as they like walk by with the <laughs> tennis ball thing going, that guy was for Trump. <laughs> I'm not eating lunch next to <laughs> him. You push him over. Yeah, push him <laughs> I'm over. Push him over. <laughs> but I just, uh, it's too, the, the water table is too contaminated. I just, I couldn't imagine like being in a campaign conference call with people who had worked with Trump. So uh, it's over for me. Uh, I, I think that my political strategist life is over. I, I'm happy. You know, I have plenty of friends in politics. Happy to do advice if somebody wants me to come be the mean Republican in a debate prep, you know, uh, <laughs> for a, a Democrat because my buddy, friends run in the campaign. I'm happy to do that. You know, you never know what happens in life in the future. But I'm not I, I, I reject all efforts to do consulting jobs. I'm enjoying writing. I'm stepping on your turf. I'm sorry. I even wrote a I even wrote a South San Francisco I, I, politics I saw article that. for was, the Bulwark. It was very good. It was very good. The Obama Democrats. <laughs> uh, so I, I'm enjoying writing. Um, people have people have enjoyed the book. I think the nice thing. We'll, we'll see how long this lasts. I don't, you know, you know, if you would have told me this was where I would be five years ago, I would have said you're insane. Ten years ago, like really <laughs> Very insane. insane okay, yes. Okay, so yes. what's ten years from now? The book is called Why We Did It: A Travelogue from the Republican Road to Hell. If if you like Tim Miller, if you like the sound, the book is written in your voice. <laughs> Thank you. And it is uh, hilarious and poignant and sad and frightening all at the same time. There's a blurb for you. I think yeah, I appreciate it's that. It's too late. We'll, it's no, too late I'll to, send it to the publisher. Yeah. That's good. There's a, there's a paperback. We'll do that. I'll there's see everybody. I look forward to that in the paperback at the edition. Fox or yeah. Kingston 11 oh, or something over yeah. in Oakland. Yeah. You can find me over there. I'm around town. <laughs> okay. Thanks for finally being on It's All sure. Political thank you on for Fifth Admission. Thank you for having me. I love it. I'd like to thank you all for listening and hope that you and your families are safe and healthy. I'd like to thank Tim Miller for finally deigning to appear on the podcast. And of course, many thanks to the king, King Kaufman, for producing today's episode. And remember, no matter why people remain loyal to Donald Trump, it's all political.
on fifth and mission. <laughs>